Okay, good. Um, so, Jim Collins. Um, I would call Jim Collins the Shakespeare of leadership books. I think he's the best. He's prolific. He's poetic. Um, he's, I don't know, probably pretty close to a genius, honestly. Um, these are his main works. And I, I've been reading leadership books for about 25 years. I've read a lot of really good ones. I think his are the best. So what I want to do is kind of distill his thinking. Because it's just, I don't think he's a follower of the Lord. Lincioni is. Uh, um, Pat Lincioni is, who's also very, very good. But he's just amazing. Um, so he wrote Built to Last first. This was back in the 90s. Fascinating book. Um, then he wrote kind of his seminal work, The Good to Great, that everybody goes to first. Um, he then wrote a wonderful monograph on good to great in social sectors because so many churches and highballs gave him a lot of um, platform in the um, aughts. So a lot of churches got into his stuff and he realized that. It's like, wow, I should actually think through what I'm writing about for not-for-profits, hospitals, sports teams, and churches. Um, so you know what, this was just a phenomenal, like if you're going to read anything, just like, like, like if this intrigues you, this is what to pick up on online for like five bucks, six bucks. Um, he then wrote How the Mighty Fall, which is actually about, so these are about companies that, that have succeeded in unusual ways and doing analysis as to why they succeeded. These are about companies that were succeeding and then didn't. So really interesting, kind of different kind of data um, collection on How the Mighty Fall. And he wrote Great by Choice, which is his last one, which was also really good. <laughs> Um, I wish he'd write something else. I don't know if he will. I think he's getting, getting up there. Um, so that's Collins and sort of how he, comes at, how he comes at things. So as you all think about, again, like the other stuff we've done together in Grey Grass, it's very scalable. So this can, a lot of these factors can work for when you're leading a team or when you're leading a small group. They can also work really well um, when you're leading something larger like an initiative or ultimately a church. Um, Collins really gives just so many things that are so helpful. And again, I started reading him 25 years ago, so I was just learning and picking it up. 25 years later, I can attest, not only is it all data-based and tried and tested through his whole very extensive, sort of literally has a laboratory, he calls it like a leadership laboratory, because um, he's very, very interested in, in, in sort of empirical data. Um, I can just say, it really helps. And I go to his thinking and I go to his ideas. He's also a really good writer. I go to his phrases all the time for not just ministry stuff, but for my life. Um, so I want you guys to know about him. And this is delicious. Thank you. Thanks, Addie. Um, so I want to just kind of um, just get his ideas in front of you all and get you kind of thinking with me about what he has to say. So I kind of just put together a little map. Um, all right, so the first thing as we get into a Jim Collins thing is it's very important to understand what he means by great. Because that word, I find that word, like the word excellence, rather off-putting. Um, and perhaps worldly in a very unhelpful way. Um, we're to think on things that are excellent, but are we ourselves supposed to be excellent? Or are we supposed to be actually poor in spirit? So it's kind of like, eh, is it a clash? And are we be great? when actually we're called to be meek. How do we read this out? So um, Collins does take great pains to define great. And 
Um, in his definition, I find it persuasive that it can fit within a gospel Jesus thinking mentality. But essentially, I, I would my quick definition of it as per scripture would be fruitfulness. So, um, so, so going, you know, from perhaps being functional, good, to fruitful, great. So were you to translate it that way from functional to fruitful is how I would really work that out. And so what he's trying to think about is not, are you famous? He actually eschews that. It's not, are you rich? He eschews that. It's, it's, are you productive in his language? And are you not just productive for one or two or three fiscal years? Have you been productive over decades? And what intrigues Collins is what's in place in an organization's mindset and in a leader's mindset that makes them productive over decades? And how are they able to pass it on from one leader to another? He, he cannot stand, this is not a thing as much, well, it actually is a thing now. Um, he cannot stand the iconic um, uh, Zuckerman or Zuckerberg, I don't even know what Mark's Zuckerberg. last, Zuckerberg, the iconic kind of Zuckerberg, Bezos, um, Bill Gates, like man of power. He can't stand it. He's uninterested in it at all. He's like, those guys come and go. So they were really gifted. Great, good, good for you, you're gifted. Um, can you build a company that has a culture that lasts over decades? I think that's such an intriguing question. Did you say that Bill and Lynn Gates are divorcing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really sad mm-hmm. and fascinating that both Bezos and Gates have both divorced in the last two or three years. Um, both with wives of over two decades. Two of the four richest men in the world, both divorced. Um, so, so Collins is asking that question. So from functional to fruitfulness. Um, and what he wants to do is he wants to help us answer the question, how fruitful are we, all, are we in ministering the gospel, in delivering on the gospel mission? How fruitful are we? Um, and by the way, when we do that, the way we do it at Res, the way that I expect my churches to do it, is I want them to do both qualitative and quantitative. Um, I don't accept that categorically we don't want to think quantitatively. Of course we want to know how much fruit is happening. We want it to be qualitative first and foremost. Is it good fruit? Is it fruit that will last, as the Lord said? That's what matters the most. Um, but we do want to know within a certain region, a certain area, how many are we reaching? Why do we care about that? Because they're each dignified image of God bearers. We want to know what that looks like. So the fact that um, one church might grow to 200 in a certain area, and another church might grow to 80, that has nothing to do with qualitative work in terms of how they're doing. But those 80 in that cityscape, for example, that may be more difficult, that's amazing to have 80 there. And, and it's amazing to have 200 there. Um, but I want to know what those 80 are, and those 80 matter, like those 200 matter. So I. I do tend to react some when people are like, it's not at all about the numbers. I'm like, nobody really believes that. Um, and if they do, don't they care about reaching more for the Lord? It's about the numbers in a certain context. Um, and it's not about more numbers necessarily as if everything was, you know, all A, 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 A. No, you have a whole alphabet of different differences and changes, perspectives, but it matters. Like if you're in a suburban context like we are and people are still somewhat open to the gospel, and you've only got 30 people coming to your church after 10 years, that matters. You should ask the question, why is that the case? And are there things that we haven't learned yet? Um, if you have 30 in a highly volatile, highly transitory, under-resourced urban area after 10 years, you, should, you may be jumping on saying hallelujah. 
I mean, Pat and Joan Crayer, uh, two of my great mentors who worked in Afghanistan and Pakistan for over 25 years, they said they could count the converts that they saw maybe on two hands or 25 years. But it's Afghanistan and Pakistan, right? Like, you're like, that's amazing. Um, that's absolutely amazing. But when I go to Nigeria and I preach, just myself I've preached, I've seen more decisions for Christ in one preaching than they saw in 25 years. Does that mean I'm more effective as an evangelist? I wouldn't dare say that. Um, it just means it's a different context, but both are fruit. So I, that's just one way to, as we got numbers and ministry and columns of stuff that's important. So here are the main principles that I wanna make sure you all understand. And that actually, this is what makes an organization work. This is what makes a family work. This is what makes even a small group work. And there's three things you add to get three main principles. One is disciplined people. Okay, so they're all gonna have the adjective discipline. Discipline is huge in productivity. Discipline is huge in fruitfulness. Well, how could that not be the case when one of the great fruits of the Holy Spirit is what? Self-control, right? Um, and Paul's often exhorting us to discipline ourselves in the Lord. And, and there's the great Willard book, if you all are familiar with, The Spirit of the Disciplines. What a good book that is by Dr. Willard. Love that book by Dr. Willard. Um, so that we learn, yeah, not in a semi-Pelagian way we were joking about, but we learn in a beautiful biblical way the importance of discipline. So disciplined people plus disciplined thought plus disciplined action gives you fruitfulness. Disciplined people plus disciplined thought plus disciplined action gives you fruitfulness. And man, am I a believer in this. So let's, let's look at Collins' stuff. First, look, we'll, we'll look at disciplined people. So Collins talks about level five leadership, and he cracked that open in good to great. And level five leadership, this is just, so I'm, I'm looking at three different kinds of disciplined people. Do you guys have that on your outline? I don't know what's on your outline, it's not. Is that? Okay, super, yeah. So we got disciplined people with level five leadership, 10X leaders, and first two. Then we have discipline, thought, then discipline action. Okay, good, cool. So there's three on disciplined people, two on thought, two on action. All right, so. He said, um, disciplined people are marked by this, personal humility and professional will. Okay, that is so good, you all. He does a ton with that in here, in terms of uh, not-for-profit, but that is so good. Personal humility and professional will. So in short, what, what does he mean? Well, he's talking about, again, remember, he's writing this to the American corporate world. This was radical when Collins cracked this thing open. Um, personal humility. So actually, what, what does personal humility look like besides I'm just so humble, aren't I amazing? No, nobody does. That's not helpful. What does personal humility look like? Well, personal humility looks like somebody who actually puts the organization before themselves. Somebody who says, what I do is as important as what my successor will do. It's, it's I believe in the vision and the mission so much, I'm glad to be subsumed under the vision and mission of this work. Personal humility looks like collaboration. People who have personal humility are actually willing to have people also doing the work. Um, you know, as the paraphrase cliche goes, um, it's stunning what you can achieve if other people get the credit. Um, and professional will, which is to say that personal humility is not a weakness of conviction. That there is a, a professional will. Now, not a will to power, but a will to see fruit, a will to endure, a will to persevere. That one of the most important things you get in a leader and that a leader must have is perseverance. Humility, meekness, poverty of spirit with perseverance, long suffering. You don't give up. Um, 
And you're just willing to keep trying and to keep trying to keep trying because there is so much failure in leadership. Things fail all the time. Or you don't do something well. I mean, I just wrote a letter about something that I did not do well. That was, that was an, I should have done better. I really should have done better than I did. Um, and so I could have said, oh man, like I'm out. Like somebody else should do this. I'm, I, and I, I didn't do it well. But what I have to do is go, I didn't do it well, but I can't give up. I need to learn how to do this well. I need to, be able to help other people do it well in the future. But I didn't do it well. How do we do this? So it's, it's, that, it's learning that rhythm. Uh, Colin says, more plow horse than show horse. <laughs> Which, um, now that I went to the Kentucky Derby, I'm a horse expert. I could tell you all about that. Um, Person of humility and professional will says, I need you. I need help. And that is something that is so powerful when a leader can, can basically say that. I need you. I need help. Um, and I think you guys have learned this in youth ministry or in our production ministry. To be able to say to somebody, I need you and I need help, is actually very empowering if you say it to the right people. If you say it to the wrong people, they don't care. But if you say it to the right people, they're like, wow. Well, first of all, I would like to help you. And second of all, you dignified me by including me in what you're doing. Um, level five leadership, disciplined people, create a context. If you have a personal humility and professional will in a leader, in a teacher, in somebody who's creating a context, whether it's a classroom or a church or a small group, it creates a context where right decisions can happen. So what you're doing with personal humility and professional will is you're creating a world you're creating a microcosm. You create a culture. This is true for family life as well, where right decisions can happen. You don't know what decisions you're going to have to make in any culture, in any family, any world. You don't know. You want to create the culture where good decisions can happen. Um, and that professional will plus personal humility is really what creates a great decision-making culture. Um, and you want to have decisions that are made for the long-term greatness of the mission. So again, you come back again and again and again. What's our what's our vision? We talked about vision and creating vision. What's our mission? You know, what's our why? What's our where? What are we going after? And they're made, they're made for that. Okay. Then Collins broke this out even more to what he called 10 times leaders. And 10x leaders are leaders who led companies that beat the industry standard by 10 times. So their their domestic their product their profit margin all their quantitative numbers were 10 times the industry standard which is just what was going on there how could these leaders do that and he said okay let me look at these 10x leaders and see what they did that was unique okay number one fanatic discipline is his phrase so back to discipline um which is extreme consistency of action and yet also willing to, to not get into a herd mentality. So it's like, I'm not gonna go here now because this is what's popular. I'm not gonna go here now because this is what's popular. I'm gonna have an extreme consistency of action. That has become extraordinarily difficult for anyone in a teaching position or a leadership position because our culture has become so incredibly volatile and things are changing so incredibly rapidly that you do have to figure out where you need to adjust and how you need to accept this is a new value that I didn't necessarily prioritize as I should have before that's come forward from our culture that needs to be addressed at the same time remaining consistent in your action. So 20 years ago, much easier, even though it was hard then. Now, one of the hardest things you're doing in leadership, you're doing in influencing, whatever you're influencing is, how do I stay consistent with what I'm called to do with the mission and vision and yet be responsive? Fanatic discipline. Second, empirical creativity. Tenex leaders showed empirical creativity. 
And this is, this is what they would do. This is, this, is a, this is another Collins phrase. They would confront the brutal facts. It's a great Collins phrase, by the way. Confront the brutal facts, then get creative and innovative. What does that mean? That means that, um, that, that, that you want to have a reality where you're asking as a leader, what's really going on? And believe me, there's a big part of every leader that's like, I don't know what's really going on. It will make my evening better if I don't know what's really going on in the afternoon. I'll just have a better evening. Um, it'll make my weekend better. Um, but the, the, the leader has to learn to always say, I want to know what's really going on. I want to know what you're really thinking. I want to know how you're really feeling. Um, now you need to know who to ask. That's important. Um, and you need to know who's in the meeting when you're confronting the brutal facts. Like when I first read this, I was so excited about it. I mean, I was like going around everywhere, getting folks to just confront brutal facts with me all the time. And um, I, mean, I got pretty beat up. Um, I learned a lot. I learned a ton. But like I would do like a confront the brutal facts section, session after every ministry year with the vestry. Like, what's everything you don't like about resurrection? Just tell me about it. Now, getting them to talk about what's concerning them about resurrection is actually very healthy. But I was like over the top. I was like searching, finding things. And, um, and so you have to kind of figure out who you're asking, who's loyal, who's committed, but who's also individuated. So they'll tell you what they think. But empirical, so it's like confront the brutal facts, what's really going on, and then get creative and innovative. Then you go, okay, now that we know what's in front of us, how do we get creative about the situation? How do we handle this personally and, and carefully? So the few things you do under empirical creativity, a couple notes there. There's some of my own stuff. One is, as a spiritual leader and a Christian leader, you create a faith and facts culture. So you want to have a culture, and this is, this is true for a small group as well, where you're operating by faith and facts. Um, so the COVID pandemic, oh my word, never have facts been so disputed. I mean, the relativism that had been developed for 20 years in the academy and philosophically now came into full, complete pedestrian power. Um, with the COVID pandemic, where it's like everyone's facts are disputable. Everyone's source of facts are disputable. But we had to do our best to say, okay, we want to do our best to figure out which body of facts are we as leaders going to accept based on the scientists and the research and the universities, et cetera. What body of facts are we going to accept? And we want to live and hear those facts, have them in front of us, but we also want to act in faith. And we want to actually not just operate under facts alone, but in faith. And we want to kind of, the way, the way I've often said it is that the, the train, the, the locomotive of ministry operates on two tracks. Faith and facts. And you're always doing faith and facts, faith and facts, faith and facts. Um, so you're confronting the brutal reality. You're not just, you're not, you're not just saying, it doesn't matter what others are saying about the pandemic, for example. I think that would be non-incarnational. So as incarnational people, like, what's really happening? Like, that's an incarnational question. What's going on in people's lives and on the ground? And what are scientists discovering as they do this research? That, that's a facts question. We as Christians aren't afraid of those facts. We want to hear them. Um, but we also know that we're called to walk by by faith, not by sight. And so that's a lifetime leadership learning right there. Faith and fact tracks, your locomotive runs on both of those. That's how I've led our vestry over the years and how uh, Dean Steve is leading our vestry now is it's a combination. Because you got budgets, you gotta make budgets. But there've been times when I've said, you know what? I've worked with the vestry and they've agreed to it eventually. One time as a director, I said, I think we need a 25% increase in budget, which was insane. I still can't believe I did it. But we looked at our, 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 our facts, our giving was good. We looked at our growth, our, our growth was very good. And we, then we prayed and we looked at what the Lord was doing. We said, we need to increase the budget by 25%. I've cut the budget by five to 7%, which is, that meant, that meant removing staff positions. 
I've done both. Um, in both cases, I'm trying to do faith and facts, faith and facts. So that actually allows you a dynamism to make different kinds of decisions. Um, when you're building an empirical creativity culture, you, you have to allow for opinions to be shared. So you, you really do have to learn how to create a culture where people's opinions and thoughts can be shared and they're not penalized for it. Um, not easy to do, by the way, but really important. Now, that also means that you need to know theologically when an opinion may be shared, and they're free to share it, but that's actually not within the boundaries of our Jerusalem Declaration or our 5S values or our Constitution. So it's not like every opinion that anyone would hold um, can be utterly influential. That's not what you're saying. What you're saying, though, is within theological paradigm and parameters, what, what do you think? And I'd really like to know what you think. Um, that is so important. And that builds something that's far greater than yourself. Uh, because all of a sudden you get other people's thinking, not just your own thinking. When you're doing this, and as a leader, when you're doing this, and I can guarantee you, you guys already have this, even in the spheres you're working in, and it gets more and more the case, is what, what's what I call the rector hammer. So what a rector, when I have to teach rectors, I have to teach every rector this, and they, they almost always get it wrong at first because they're not used to it, is that what they were used to having when opinions are being switched, say, say everyone has an opinion being shared in the room and they all have a fly swatter, which, which sort of represents their opinion. And they go, ah, I think this, I think that, I don't like that. You know, they, everyone has a fly swatter. When you become a rector, all of a sudden you have a hammer. Everyone else has a fly swatter. But when you go after something, it's a hammer. And goes, whoa, he just used the hammer. Um, I've now learned that I have a jackhammer. I and mean, that's what I had when I was bishop. It took me years to learn. That when I'm in a room and I say something very calmly, I, I dial down my, you know, emphatic ways and I'm really mellow and just kind of sweet, you know, like, like like I wish I was more often anyway and reasonable, it's still like, <laughs> um, that's how authority and power works. So you have to understand how your authority and power works so you can still create a culture where people say what they want to say. Now, millennials are a very helpful antidote to that, I would add. Um, <laughs> so they'll still tell you what they're thinking. Um, okay. So tenants have finite discipline, empirical creativity, and finally what, what Collins calls Productive paranoia. <laughs> you guys, this guy's a piece of work. Productive, what do you mean by that? Productive paranoia is a kind of hypervigilance about larger cultural realities where you're going, this could get bad, this could be bad. Um, a productive paranoia, you're like, whew, like let's say last June, I saw what happened in the brutal killing of George Floyd. It had every appearance of profound injustice. Um, there's not been an investigation done yet, obviously, there's not been a trial yet. Um, but it had every, every, everything that you could put together as a fact-based person, as best as you could, you went, well, this seems really unjust. Uh, this seems really bad. And this has affected our whole country with her profound history of racial injustice. This is a big moment. So I actually went down to my mom's for two days, like a getaway, sat at my mom's house, and just worked on stuff. Read stuff, thought about stuff called a few people, read more stuff, and went, this is a really big moment. This is a big deal. And, and, and it's a big deal, and it's, it's, a, it's, a big bad, it's a big bad deal. I mean, it's what's happened to this, this man, what's happening to people of color. Um, yeah, this is a big deal. So I got pretty paranoid, if you will. <laughs> I went, this really, really, really matters. Um, I'm glad I did, because it, it has been a really big deal. And it took a lot of communication and some videos that we needed to make and other things to really respond to that moment. I had some productive paranoia, honestly. Um, similar when we had the Capitol riots on January 6th. They went, woo, this 
this is a really big deal in our country. This is a really big deal culturally. This could be a big deal for our church. And it was. So there's a kind of hypervigilance that a leader has to have around the larger cultural realities so that you're ready for creative action. So that you're ready to go, okay, this is an act of significant injustice. This has affected people of color throughout our diocese, throughout our, our, our culture and our community. How do, we, how do we creatively respond to it? What do we do? So one of the first things that we did was we gathered a team um, to say, how do we respond? And one of the first things I did was have Will and Emma Chester, who have a massive part for this reality. They operate and have a very developed uh, millennial vernacular. They speak millennial without an accent, right? And I needed that because I speak millennial with an accent. I know that. I mean, I think I have a good sense of millennials and a deep love for the millennial generation, but I'm a Gen Xer. I'm different generationally. Mm-hmm. How would you say this? How would you think about this? Mm-hmm. I mean, they spent two hours talking to me about stuff. I was like, wow. Now I trust them so much and I've built a discipleship relationship with them for two years, but I needed them to kind of help understand, okay, what's productive paranoia, what's not. All right, 10 X leaders. Okay, um, one more group of disciplined people that he talks about, and this is, this is just sheer hugeness. Um, you might even call it huge. Um, disciplined people, it's first who, then what? This is one of Collins's big maxims. First who, then what? Here's, here, here's what Collins says. Greatness, for our purposes, fruitfulness, flows first and foremost from having the right people in the right seats on the bus. You may have heard that phrase. I don't know if you guys have heard it or not. But having the right people in the right seats on the bus. Oh, that I could impart this and its urgency to every pastor in the country. Um, What pastors often do not do well and what spiritual leaders often do not do well is they do not understand identify and then learn how to put the right people in the right seats on the bus. And I will say that what Resurrection's team has learned how to do, and we are not perfect, it's impossible to be perfect, this is impossible. It's the hardest thing you do, but it's putting the right people in the right seats on the bus. Um, and, and we've learned that when you don't have somebody in the right seat on the bus, what you do about it, I'll talk about that. Um, so this is, this is where you get the most fruitfulness. Why? Romans 12, because it's the body of Christ. Because different people, different gifts working together. I mean, it's actually a very, very biblical concept. Um, that functionality is less important than somebody's personal fruitfulness and their, their gifting. The five M's would be one example of that. Know people's five M's. Know how they're wired in terms of that. Understand other ways in which God has called them. And your goal is to try to get them in the right seat on the bus. Indeed, that's part of the house of ministry. Work of ministry residencies in Gregory House. It's helping you all understand how are you wired? What are you made for? You're, you're having teachings, you're involved in ministry, you've got supervisors, you have mentors, and you have to find and figure out, hey, I'm good at XYZ, I don't like, you know, LMNOP. Um, that's really important. That's really, really important. So as I'm looking at building a movement and a future diocesan church, one of the things I'm trying to do is create places through ministry residencies throughout the diocese where folks can find out what they're good at and we can also see what they're good at and go, Hey, if we put you here, I think you're going to do really well. I think you do really well. Um, so that is, that's just so important. Okay. Now this gets easier in time. So my church planters, super hard for them. <laughs> and they mess it up. Oh man, they mess it up. They just need whoever. They need whoever. Totally, Matt. Exactly. It's like, it's like the pressure's on, right? So you don't, you can't be that choosy. 
And so you, you often make decisions that aren't awesome, but maybe work for even a year or two years. Then you get somebody else that may be better suited for what you need them to do. That's exactly right. Um, but also, if you get too desperate and you put the wrong person in the wrong seat on the bus, then you could lose a whole church plan. Yeah. Depending. Wow. Right? Um, and that's why a lot of churches split. It's why a lot of church plans don't make it. It's this very reason. Which is one reason, too, why we're exploring more and more how do we help our planters actually start a whole church with a team in place? Um, mm-hmm. And we've tried. We've actually tried the concepts in our head. But how can we do better at saying, hey, we already know who the children's director is. We already know who the worship pastor is. We already know who the operations person is. Um, we're trying really hard to figure out how can we resource that more um, so that they're more and more ready. So that some of the seats are already filled. Um, okay, so, but as you build a team, here's, here's what's happened, and here's where, where, where Rez is at, and this is an incredible gift, is we just get so many good people because we have so many good people. Yeah. And mature people are drawn to mature people. It's pretty crazy. Now again, this took us 25 years to build, and I can promise you it wasn't always the case. It was not at all always the case. But now, people are drawn, to, I mean, you, you've got a Steve Williamson running things? I mean, He's the real deal. He's a mature, godly, incredibly gifted leader. You go, I'd like to be around him. You guys don't know Amy Patton as much, but when Amy's running things, that was Amy all the way. Um, Megan Robbins, it's like, wow, she's really, truly a pastor. Like she, she's got, she understands pastoral ministry. Wow, I'd like to be around her. So that's a huge blessing as, as, as you get going. I have even hired people, and I had to work through my vestry because... They create the position, I do the hire. Um, now, Dean Steve does, but I'd hire people, I'm like, I'm not even sure exactly what I want them to do. I just know I need this person. Mm. And um, and if you do that in the right way, with some experience, it can go really, really well. Mm. Um, you don't always do that, but. What's an example? Like, you mean like- Who have I hired that, that I like had, um, well, in some ways, Steve was a very incremental hire because he was hired to first assist the worship pastor at the time um, and again, I just loved Steve. Like we were running partners. I was like, I just really like this guy. And he seems really mature and gifted. And so I just kind of brought him on as that. Mm. And then I didn't know for sure. Like I definitely had the vision to be the worship pastor. Mm. And then I definitely had the vision to be an executive pastor or a dean. So I think that'd be an example where it's like, let's get him here. Yeah. Let's get him in um, and see what he can do. Um, you know, so I think that, that would be one example that comes in mind immediately, Matt, is first two. Then we'll figure out the what. So on the Red Staff team, still, I think this is the case. Like, job description isn't as huge. And, I mean, you can see this, Eddie. I mean, like, things change in ministry as well. So when you have a person of character, you even can move them around, as long as you're fair and clear. Sometimes ministries abuse that reality. Um, yeah, I'll think about it some more, because it's, it's a good question. Um, okay, here's the deal with first two that's really important. In church work, this is very different than business. In business, somebody doesn't fit, you terminate them. It's part of the game. It's part of how it works. You used to pay them. Now you don't pay them. And they move on. And it doesn't hurt the business. Not in church. Mm-hmm. The church is family. Man. As much as companies want to say they're family. They're not, they're not. It's money. It's money. I mean, get off it. It's just it's money. And even for more and more hospitals. I mean, your dad works in hospitals. It's money. It's yeah. insurance and it's money. We, you know, and, and a part we excuse that. We understand it. Yeah. Not church. The Ford family. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. But how about church? We are family. We say we're family and we are. Woo! But we also pay people. Woof. 
Complicated. Complicated. So one way to handle that complication is better make sure there's the right seat on the bus. Um, so getting folks out of a seat on the bus in church work, particularly if it's a full-time pastoral staff position, it's brutal, miserable. Um, I have only terminated one pastoral staff position and then one support position years ago. I've been really fortunate, really blessed. Um, so how do you do this? Well, one, one thing you do is you employ early assessment mechanisms and seasons for discernment. In other words, when you bring somebody into something, and again, this, but you're, you're, you're making clear, hey, we're going to go through a process where we're going to see how the first six months go. We're going to see how the first year goes. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're not already in and becoming family. They are. But you're at least creating expectations for everyone. We're going to have time to figure this out. Um, we're going to see how this goes. I often tell my rectors, when you're in doubt, don't hire. If you have a doubt, don't hire, rather than do hire and hope that it'll work out. Um, which is hard, because when you're a rector and you got pressure to hire a children's director, you want to hire the children's director. And you can start wearing rector glasses, and you put the rector glasses on, you're like, oh, they're a great children's director. They're going to be outstanding. You know, so you got, again, you need, you need collaboration, people that will help you confront the brutal facts and go, can I take these glasses off just, and not, not can you look at the candidate? And you're like, ah, <laughs> what was I thinking? Uh, I know what you're thinking. You've got lots of pressure to make children's ministry work because you won't grow a church without children's ministry and you won't disciple kids without children's ministry. Um, so one thing you learn, this is just, uh, this won't be immediately applicable for you guys, but one thing that you learn is when you know you need to make a change with a, a staff person, for example, you take your time, but you do act. You move slowly. Don't be rash for their sake as well as your sake and for the church's sake. You ask this question, can you retrain somebody can you retrain them? Can you actually get them to work in this job that's not working? If you can't retrain them, can you reposition them? Is there somebody else, somewhere else within the ministry that they could maybe flourish better? And if you can't retrain and you can't reposition, then you have to face removing. Um, also, by the way, one thing you want to do when you're getting the first two, then what, and this is really true for the work you guys do, is, um, and Addy, I bet you found this to be true in your work. Uh, maybe not, I'd be curious, but find the two busy people. If somebody and you go, oh, they're too busy, that's who you want. Because too busy people are people that are probably going to do well because <laughs> they're doing lots of things. And your hope is that, that when you go and ask them to do something, they'll go, that matters so much, I will, just, I will not do something else so I can do your thing. Um, so I'm always looking for too busy people. And when I look at my bishop's council, I'm like, who's too busy? Who's got lots of things going on? Um, great example of that would be Jill, Jill and Alex Smith. And let's get to the Smiths. Um, all right, five kids. All of them still young. Um, I mean, Alec has an incredibly demanding position clerking for a federal judge, right? Um, Jill homeschools all the kids. Except a couple are going to school, but she's homeschooling and everything else. So why would I not ask Jill to be on vestry, right? He's like, of course you do. Yeah. Why would I not ask Alec to be worship leader? And he's basically our vice chancellor without having the actual title in terms of um, providing counsel to me as bishop when it comes to legal matters. Well, of course I'm going to ask them. They can always tell me no, right? But I'm going to ask him. Ask two busy people. Um, now, of course, there's some exceptions. If somebody's in a season of life where there's a you know, maybe there's a slowdown or a sabbatical or a transition, it doesn't mean that somebody who's not busy isn't productive or healthy. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, generally speaking, you're looking around going, who's doing stuff? So you're the work. reason Alec can't join us for rock climbing on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. He's been in a lot of meetings lately. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and he also rock climbs. 
Yeah. He's kind of insane that way. Yeah, he is. He really is kind of a renaissance man. It's, yeah. it's some people just wired that way. It's just yeah. fascinating. It's just really almost, he could also like, it's a great at building stuff and engineering stuff and yeah. a musician, writes songs. What's up with that guy? Yeah. Irritating. He helped, he helped Will catch a raccoon the other day. Oh, did he really? Yeah. That's awesome. You should ask Will about that. I, I, I would love to hear that story. Yeah, uh, the ball got... Uh, he, his son and my son are very good friends and they got a soccer ball up on the roof of a school. And so El, uh, Beckett said, Daddy wouldn't believe this, but Mr. Smith looked around this way, turned this way, like jumped on the wall and like... Like got up the wall. Like I don't think he actually Spider-Man did, but like, like, like yeah. found like a you know, suit, you know, you know, you know, like a funnel coming down. He's like, he's like, it was amazing, Daddy. And I could tell that what was implied was, I'm not sure you could do that. You know, I was like, yeah. that's true. Um, okay, so now discipline thought. Um, this is really interesting. So. But actually, let me stop on this. Any thoughts? Any any thoughts you guys have about disciplined people? Because I just threw out three things at pretty significant rapid fire. Thoughts, observations, questions that come up as we reflect on disciplined people. Gosh, my my uncle has a he runs a company that is that is definitely like one of the greats. Mm. Paternal or maternal uncle. Uh, He like will even recognize what he he'll even find out whether entry level people are like not thriving in their position, and as the CEO, he'll meet with those first wow. people. Wow. And he's beloved all the way down, and one of the reasons is because he's he uses this. He's probably read these books. Oh, I'm he sure he does. Collins like seat metaphors. He's like, I feel like you're not in the right seat. Where would you like to be? Mm. Most of the time, people are like. I'd actually really like that position. Mm. He's like, great. And he moves them in that position. We'll see how you do there. And, and they, mm. they love it. They thrive. And there's a trust relationship. They feel known. They feel known. It's, That's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. What, what kind of business is it? You know, he's a stock market analyst. Mm -hmm. So it's this... I've never been able to describe what the business yeah. is. Yeah. It's so hard to understand it. Mm. My dad is also head of board at a private Christian school. Oh, that's right. They have had classical education has been yeah. huge to your, your dad's contribution. That's right. They've had those instances of like, we really need a principal. Yeah. We've got these three applicants. We need one by next year. Yes. This one looks maybe the best. Let's just fill the position. One guy on the board is like, I just don't feel right about this guy. Mm. And they're like, but he's perfect. To leave. To leave. My dad learned, like, there's any doubt. Right. Yeah, totally. Totally. Especially when you're at that level. Yeah. Especially when you're at that level. Wow. Now, those are the lessons learned for sure. Any other thoughts from your guys' ministry, even this last year? Because you're reflecting on this, because help me scale it as you think about production work. Youth work and stuff you guys have experienced in those last year. I was really intrigued by the point on the on finding the too busy people. Yeah. Because I guess for a while my inclination was always like they won't be able to be as engaged in this because right. they're too busy, which may be the case sometimes. Yeah, but, I get by sometimes. But um, there were like so I was in charge of doing a, a little bit of uh, creating uh, Bible studies for the youth group for the year, 
And so I put together a couple of other youth leaders, and there was a lot that were like, kind of fell in that category, like they're doing a lot of things. Um, But they ended up being super engaged and Mm. got a lot Mm. of really cool studies from them Mm -hmm. and and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, I saw a little bit of that, but it also seems kind of, at first I was like, that sounds kind of counterintuitive. Oh, definitely. You would think like, the busy people are like, oh, okay, I understand, like, Totally. Yeah, take this on, but those are also the people that are like, no, I want to do. You know. Well, it kind of forces you as the leader to decide, do I have a really good thing to give them? Mm-hmm. And almost like our, ups our game to go. Yeah. What am I asking them to do? Mm-hmm. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah. And if it isn't something that's actually gonna like, like they can go for it, I probably shouldn't ask them. I shouldn't under ask these people. Yeah. You know. Absolutely. But like absolutely. developing a Bible study for our youth, that's a thing. Yeah. Like, would you be willing to, you know, employ your intellect and ability to do that? That's a thing. Yeah. And again, people that are that like have a heart for this and are good at doing this, they'll be like, I can suss out. This is a thing. Yeah, it's really yeah. interesting. And there was one person who who truly was like too busy, yeah. and so she told me that, and I was like, that's Great. totally fine. Like, you know, you're, I completely understand that. Yeah. But yeah, so I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and the one again. A person that has a maturity and is developing as a leader and uh, just a productive person will also know when they have to say, and like folks in their 20s, you can't expect them to always know. They don't always know. Lots of grace, honestly. Like in your 20s, you're figuring out what is too busy and what can I handle and what have I overcommitted? I've always felt like give folks space to go I overcommitted and I didn't know it. Like that's just part of growing in your 20s to learn rhythms and what you can handle. But as folks get mature, they'll, they'll be able to say, ah, oh, I really can't do that. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay, great. I'll ask you next time. Um, I'm one of those too busy people. The too busy people? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. sure. But I find that in my busy seasons, I'm more productive because I have to be more focused on how I lose my time. And, totally. and it keeps me engaged all the time instead of like, oh, I'm just going to crash. Um, right. I mean, I rarely crash, but yeah. that's a good thing. I, I think it keeps me motivated. Uh, but this has been helpful in thinking about the way that I staff a tech team. Like, mm-hmm. how can I have people in the right role to really succeed in, like, the vision for that specific task? I mean, it's a very small example of, um, compared nope. to, you know, church, but it's helping me practice, like, seeing people, getting to know them and their strengths, and then using those gifts, um, not just to help me, but really to bless the whole congregation. So Completely. I feel like I'm experiencing this in, in a really painful way. Completely. Um, and also, I mean, yeah, on the, the first comment you made, I mean, that, again, that's a good, I think you're right that overall it's a good thing. Now, you don't want to burn out, and you got to make sure you pace yourself, as per what I taught on earlier on, how to you know, do ministry and not burn out. Um, those rhythms are really important, so I don't want to in any way discount those rhythms. But I think it's a good age to have a lot going on. I really do. Um, and, of course, I'm, I'm parenting folks you guys ages um as i watched my kids go through this that are older i'm like yeah you know you need to kind of do that to figure out a what i'm really called to do and what i'm loving and 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 and, and where i'm going and what i can what is my capacity one way to find that out is to somebody's have too much and go that was too much oh that type of thing was too much i just i really can't do that that's legitimate you find it out but you only gotta find out unless you're you're engaged in stuff and, and you're going after stuff. It's really true. And of course, as we talked about with how to minister and not burn out, how to serve and not burn out, you do it in seasons. So you go through a really, really busy season. You go, okay, I could do that. I could do that for three weeks. I couldn't do that for three months, right? 
and you, you find that out too. Um, but it also, and I've said this for years, it's fascinating. In, in life, ministry, but also in life, it's amazing. And I don't know how this works literally, but you do build psychological muscles. You just do the same way you build physical muscle by doing certain workouts. You build psychological muscle. And what you can handle that you couldn't have handled two years ago or five years ago, um, I mean, it's part of the whole scriptural teaching on being refined um, by the fire, gold refined by the fire, as the Apostle Peter says in our, our daily lessons right now. I mean, maybe that's part of the kind of the spiritual principle that's there, but man, you, you're able to do a lot more than you thought you could do. You just, it's incredible. True with parenting as well. You just, you know, like, like what, what exhausted me when I was a, a dad of one and what exhausted me as a dad of five are two very different things, you know, <laughs> just very, very different. So, okay, cool. Let's look at some of this. This is some great, this is some great life stuff as well, not just leadership <clears throat> stuff. Discipline thought. One of his great things is called the hedgehog concept. Where's my hedgehog? Oh, there he is. <laughs> so, um, Barbara Gautier gave this to me when I taught her in the vestry about this, I don't know, a long time ago, 15 years ago. <laughs> um, so, um, I have never named him. Maybe I should name him Jim. <laughs> so, um, there's philosopher Isaiah Berlin. Is that right? Uh, I think in his philosophical writings, he talks about the difference between the hedgehog and the fox. So it's like some kind of fable that he picks up on. And basically the concept is the hedgehog is slow and focused, kind of, you know, but moving the same direction. And the fox is fast and diffuse. Um, and so what Collins is arguing for long-term in your life and in your ministry, your leadership is hedgehog versus fox. So with hedgehog concept, you want to be slower, but very focused rather than fast and diffuse. So here's how he describes um, how you do that. Okay. So he says, you want to ultimately attain piercing clarity about what you can be best at. I mean, I knew what you're best at yet, but what do you believe you can be best at? What we would say is, what do you believe God has put you on this earth to do? I mean, Matt, it was such a privilege a few weeks ago to work on the 5Ms to hear you just kind of breaking open after some time of incredible prayer and wrestling. I'm really working through what I feel like the Lord's put me on the earth to do. Like, what, what could I be best at for Him? Such a privilege. And I look forward to hearing more about that, by the way, and how that's continued to process. I'd like to really hear about that. Um, so you're trying to attain piercing clarity about what that is. And it's also true for an organization. So my job now is one of my main jobs is to figure out what is Diocese of the Midwest primarily called to be really fruitful in? Like, what's our jam? What's our thing? Um, and obviously, I've, it's revival of word and sacrament, but what does that mean? Well, I've, I've given the five vision, you know, for that. It's, it's worship and multiplication, evangelism, multi-ethnic family, deliverance. So kind of like, what are those things that you're, you're called to be really good at? So he says, okay, how do you do that? He says, you have one circle, and that's your passion. Okay, so one circle is your passion circle. So you have, okay, what am I passionate about? What do I just love? Again, now we really heard you like, man, I loved being in those classrooms um, with folks of all different stripes and backgrounds. You know, some more conservative, some more progressive and challenging. Like, like I love those moments of bringing the gospel and this Bible there. I love that. It was just so fun to go, 
I'm finding out what I love. And you know, it takes some time. It takes time to find out what you love. You don't just necessarily know what you love. You got to find out what you love and what you're passionate about. And then he says, the other circle is, what are you really good at? So, and he, again, the way he puts it is, what can you be at the best, the best in the world in? That's a little, for his usual articulation, that's a bit much. But um, what are you really good at? What do you do really well? Okay, so that, and then, um, what do you have resources for? Um, so it's resources. So in other words, in the case of like a, like a church organization, um, you know, what is it that, that drives your resource engine? Like what makes the resource engine work? In church, it's like, well, who are your people? What leaders do you have and people do you have? Where's your giving? How's your giving going? And how clear are you about your vision? So it's just like these drive, like, it's like resources in church are people, money, clarity of vision and mission. Um, what drives that? And what he says is you put together your passion with what you're best at, with where there's resources, where there's, where there's you know, energy and, and, and favor, and it's going to work financially, it's going to work emotionally. And here, he would say, you put those three together, that's your hedgehog. That's what you go, that's what we're called to do. So for Rez, the first time I put this, this process, we realized in the language we used many years ago was our hedgehog is building a sanctuary of transformation. And that became our, our mission phrase. Building our vision phrase, excuse me, our vision phrase. Building a sanctuary of transformation. We think that we can be really good at building. We're a good building organization. We, we build things well. Transformation is our biblical focus um, and sanctuary, worship. That's what we do. So building a transformation. So we said that's our hedgehog. That's what we go after now. The hedgehog for the diocese, planting a revival of word and sacrament infused by the Holy Spirit. That's what I'm trying to do. I think, I think that we actually have a passion for revival in word and sacrament. I think we're good at that. Actually, a gifting for that. And people give toward that. People come and, and sign up for that. Um, so it's working that out. So as you guys think about your own work, resources, you know, where, where, where is this? Where is there money for this? Where is there time for this? Where am I willing to make a sacrifice for this? Right, because you don't always have the money, especially when you're beginning something. But like, where are the resources for this? And do, are those there? What do I deeply care about? And what am I good at? I think that's such a helpful thing. That gives you your hedgehog. That's just a great discernment tool to get clear about your hedgehog. Um, and so you start getting great fruitfulness when you get disciplined people, right? Level five, 10X, um, first two, taking discipline action like the hedgehog that's where you start to get real fruitfulness i think i'm a little unclear about resources yeah it's the most unclear of all this stuff okay. i think of the three i think it's the most unclear and i think it translates the least i think in a company if you're looking at which is his main care his main focus is the idea would be where's a profit margin so not only are you good at it and not only do you care about it but when you sell that product you have a great profit margin where is that? So I think that translates the poorest of the three, honestly. Okay. So um, so I think you've identified the weakness in the translation. I, th I think that's right. So what we've done at Res is when we do these things, do we see our people giving toward them? Mm -hmm. So and you, you probably even have a few hedgehogs. Like one hedgehog we have is Global Heart. That's just a thing for Res. We care about it a ton. We've actually been really good at building global partnerships. They've done really well, mm -hmm. which isn't a guarantee. 
and our people give toward it. Yeah. So that would be like one example where those three come together. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's harder to translate it. It's really clear in business. Are you making money or not? I mean, you may love it. You may be good at it, but are you making any money? If you're not, that's not your hedgehog. He'd say, it maybe a passion project. You should do it right on the side. Like, put it in R&D. Don't, don't put it center in your business. Do people buy it? That, that's, and I think that, that makes sense as a corrective. It's like, if not, you can end up just niching over here. Like, I love it and I'm good at it. It's like, oh, good for you. Um, but are people coming to your church? Are people coming to Christ? Are people giving toward it? Those are the things, too, that are probably helpful in the church world. And actually, now that you asked me this question, probably one way that's helpful is there can be, and the ACNA can have lots of this, um, for folks that come out of an evangelical, high-performance-oriented, activistic-oriented background, they can come into the ACNA with church planting and think, oh, well, I just love it. I just love Anglicanism. I love it so much. Um, and I get it. I understand that I'm good at it. That's enough for a church plant. And that's where you have to go, no, that's actually not enough. I mean, I have listened to so many podcasts with church planters like, I was part of a mega church and I didn't like the system. Don't blame them, but didn't like this, didn't like that. And then I found Anglicanism and I realized, oh, like we could be a small village. And it's like, yeah, it's a church of 25 for 10 years and they can't support a pastor. And, you know, um, so like, where are your resources? Like, like that worked, that worked and that worked, but your resources didn't work. People didn't come. People didn't give. You're not. You're not self-sustaining. Mm-hmm. Probably, good, probably a good way to think about yeah. it. Okay. Um, that's actually really helpful for me here. Make a note of that. Thanks for asking that question. Yeah. There you go. Any cute Barbara goatee. She's giving me some great. I got a few things Barbara's giving me. It's really fun in this office. Um, that was Ty Warner. That little I gnome. Ask. That was Ty. Um, what about the little uh, bishop I Somebody gave that to Beckett. Uh, bef- it was before I was made a bishop. And then, because it's like, it's like Santa Claus, right? Um, so I, I play mobile, leave it. I, I think it's German. Yeah. Leave it to the Germans. Yeah. You know, so they wanted to do kind of a, a, like a real like bishop of Myra or whatever. Isn't that fun? Yeah. Yeah, that became, that gnome, just very briefly, came out of a, we had an initiative at Res, eventually has become church planting that was called Mini Altars, M-A-N-Y, Mini Altars, like one church res with many altars. Um, but Anne hadn't yet seen the print on it. She just heard that we were doing this initiative in a vestry meeting, one church, Mini Altars, and she heard Mini Altars, M-I-N-I. And Anne's like, they're also into Tolkien around here. <laughs> She's like, are they talking about like some kind of goofy, like, like like reaching elvish people kind of thing. Like Anne was like, I do not know what's going on here. So Ty Warner, if you guys all met Ty, because Ty and I are very good friends and we were investing together. We got into this whole thing about about reaching garden gnomes. And that actually, yes, we were that's our goal is to reach many altars throughout the Western servers of garden gnomes. Um, so we're not gonna this is not outreach, this is downreach. Right? And we like built out a whole thing that we all thought was very funny about it. And so for a season, I was given gnomes, including that chap over there to the left of Father Christmas and then that, that rather stalwart chap. Isn't that great? <laughs> the things you do to entertain yourself under a lot of pressure. What's that? Yeah, way, way too much fun. Ty Warner's fun. Okay, someone thought, the genius of the and. Um, 
This is awesome. I love the genius of the end. And uh, this is, I mean, you know, a mask can take it to, it's, you know, easy to start seeing Hegelian dialectic in here. Um, I, can't, I can't help but see that. Yeah, you can't help it. Um, and there's something to that, right? There's something to it. Probably philosophically, there's an underpinning that someone like a great thinker like that was trying to get after, um, which is, uh, you, it is the importance. Here's, here's, here's an F. Scott Fitzgerald quote, the author. I love this. The test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in the mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. Now, I mean, obviously you guys don't even want to say that works in a lot of places, not always theologically. Sometimes there's two opposed ideas that do not form a kind of Hegelian dialectic or a Lulian mishmash. Um, they're just, they don't work together. It's like sometimes it's, as we're not unsophisticated to say, that just doesn't work. Um, but we certainly are understanding that Jesus is both God and man. That we understand is a very important both and one of the most important, right? You have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, three persons. Um, so there's something to the idea of, and I'm, I'm thinking about this way more pragmatically than theologically. When you're working through something, can you hold two opposing ideas of how you might, two strategic ideas, um, two, two, um, two vision ideas even, can you hold them in tension, a revival of word and sacrament, that'd be a classic example. Those are two kind of opposing ideas in a popular mindset. Revival is one thing, word and sacrament's another. These are stone churches, this is an institution, folks walking around in robes, this is tent meeting, this is extemporaneous, this is exciting, this is kind of boring, but you know, but established, blah, blah, blah. Can you put revival and word and sacrament together? That's the genius of the both and, I think. Um, so when you're, when you're doing the genus of the both and, one of the most important things you have to learn, this is very germane to our diocese right now, is preserving the core and stimulating progress. You preserve the core and stimulate progress. What does that mean? So here's what that means in real time for our diocese right now. Is um, we are in a, such a rapidly, rapidly changing time, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a time too where more and more progressive and or just new thought is coming into the American mindset and having to be filtered into what can be part of the gospel and what is not part of the gospel. Take the issue of race, for example. Um, and we don't know all the answers to that yet. We don't know yet. We just, we're working through new ideas. We're working through new concepts. We're trying to sift through and discern what is gospel that must be embraced and what's not. Um, so just call something woke is unhelpful. Well, some of it might be actually wake up as per Advent. That's really good. But what's actually an ideology that's not of the gospel, right? Um, Deacon John's CRT lecture would be an example of that. It's like, we're trying to sift this through right now. So how do you lead an organization? We're trying to sift all this through right now. You just say, no more conversations about anything out there. We're gonna just make this thing super clear super rigid, make everything as, as clear as possible. And if you don't fit within these lines, you're not a part of what we're doing. Um, there's a part of me that knows I'm going to be answerable to the Lord at the end of all this that wants to do that. Like, I can understand why people do that as a leader. You're like, ha ah, ha like this is getting really confusing. Um, so what do you do? And I think what you do is you have to have the both and, which is to say, you actually have to have a core, a core of folks that are utterly clear in the diocese, for example, on the five S's values. They're utterly clear in Jerusalem Declaration. They're utterly clear on stuff that even the five S's in Jerusalem Declaration and, um, and the founding formularies of Anglicanism in the prayer book, even those things don't speak to. So it's kind of like 
Okay, now we're getting into the gray areas of how do we talk about uh, somebody who identifies as gay, can they be gay Christian or not? We're into that area. Um, how do we handle CRT, right? And you need to have a core that's conversant in that. They may not all utterly agree on everything together, but overall they're like, yes, like we have an overall very nuanced paradigm, not just for the key formularies or key things, but other things as well to say, yeah, like we get that. Um, women's ordination would be a classic example. Women's in ministry. Like, so, so you have to have a core that's, that's actually just naturally like in the Lord. This is what we believe. We're able to hold this so that you can actually stimulate progress farther out so folks can come in and go, well, I don't fully agree with all that. Is there room for me while I'm making these discernments, while I'm understanding this? And the answer needs to be yes. Now, as you come more and more in, you know, ultimately, like, you do have to agree with the five S's. You do have to agree with some declaration. You do have to agree with these things. And then as the bishop teaches, um, you also need to agree with the bishop's teachings, which is one of the ways that we're interpreting the scriptures. That's one of the roles of the bishop. Now that, but like, if I say that out, out here on the, on the edges, that just sounds crazy. And nobody has adherence to that. Yeah, they haven't bought into a reformed Catholic way of thinking. So I'm not going to do that on the edges. On the edges, I'm going to say, come in, get to know us, find out what we're about. We'll get to know you. Um, think with us. Think about how we think and tell us what you think, right? And you, as you're coming in more, so like ultimately like my deans, for example, like the four like elders that oversee the diocese, my deans, we need to be really working closely together on how we're thinking about stuff. And they need to feel really comfortable with my teaching and feel like, I can really live by that. And then from there, what about my senior priests? Then from there, my priests. Then from there, my clergy, right? So preserving the core, but stimulating progress on the outside, I think is really one of the key ways to do things and to do things as church in this current season. And there's a lot hitting, a lot of discernment, a lot of new stuff. Um, so that's, that's even true like a ministry residency, right? So for me, ministry residencies are stimulating progress. It's saying, we need to have folks come in who have different backgrounds and schooling and, and thoughts. We can't conform all that. We can't expect 24-year-olds to all think as those of us that have been thinking about these things for 20 years together think about it. We can't expect that. Mm. We need space for folks to think about stuff and to come in and go, I don't know, or I had this prof that said this, and they need to have the freedom to go, I gotta think that through. That's actually really important for development, really important for them, important for our organization. And if we don't do that, who's ever gonna come? I mean, how can I expect people to think like a 55-year-old, right? That's ridiculous. Yeah. I didn't think this way. Um, and also, we're Reformed Catholic. Well, that's hard to explain. It's hard to live. You guys heard me go over and over about it with women in ministry because it's the paradigm that helps us decide how we're going to think about things. But I can't expect folks to come in being Reformed Catholic if they've been formed at Moody or formed at Wheaton. Mm. I can't expect that. So you're starting out here and you're going, okay, now as folks get more and more involved, more and more committed, like where are our church planters in that, in that process? You know, they may not even be in the same place the deans are, but they're going to plant a church. They got to be pretty close because now they're representing the ministry of the diocese. So just, just some thoughts you, you might have thought, Matt, just yeah, some thinking just on that. Like, That's the genius of the ant, trying to get at the genius of the ant. Yeah. Um, I think our, my impression is that our diocese does this so well, the core. Um, my question is that, like, how... How do you avoid, like, how do you know um, what is okay to disagree on? And how do you create a core that isn't just a replication of yourself? Totally. Owning yourself and a bunch of people. But totally. like, there's, because I get the, you know, I really, I see that in, in our diocese, the core, there's like a unity and a distinction. There's a difference yeah. of opinion among right. everyone. But like, there's still like a, a unity. And yep. I'm just like, how, how did you, how was that achieved? 
And, and, and how do you know, and I think that that was a question that was asked in the WO, Women in Ministry session that we didn't get to fully answer, which was a really good question, which is, um, where, where is it okay to disagree and where is it not? Yeah. Um, I need to work on that question more, I think, because that's actually a really important question. And my first thought would be that they, that, that gets answered by, well, where are you kind of in even this process of, um, you know, of coming into the movement, learning what we're talking about, having space to work those things out. Like, where are you in that process as to what are stuff we can disagree about and what stuff we can't disagree about? Yeah. Um, and, um, and so that, I think we're still, we're still getting clear about that even as deans on certain matters that come up and we go, are we okay with a deacon thinking that way? Mm-hmm. It's all within Jerusalem Declaration, but mm-hmm. Jerusalem Declaration is only 14 points. So, yeah. so, um, so man, I think that's a great question. And, um, and I think it also comes back to, and this is something that I'm still working through, quite honestly, which is it's the role of the bishop. So I think the American concern, which is not without its warrant, is of everything moving around a leader. Right? This is Colin's concern. Yeah. Like everything moving around a leader. And we need to be concerned about that. On the other hand, the ancient perspective was, oh, your bishop's Christ to you. Hmm. Now, they knew that the bishop was still a sinner. They weren't saying otherwise. They, they, they had a well-developed you know, uh, theology of sin. But they also felt like the only, the only way this whole thing was going to work is if people can rally around a bishop and his teaching as per the apostolic deposit and test it with the apostolic deposit. But if it tests with it, as best as can be seen, follow them. That's actually how they had unity. Um, so the unity was actually based around the office of bishop. It's insane. I mean, it makes me uncomfortable. And it, I mean, even in my role, and maybe uncomfortable for it. But I was like, wow, that really is one of the Catholic ways is this is how you know. And then the priests as they represent the bishop um, as well. So there was a profound kind of, that's okay. Yeah. We almost need that. And we need the teachings of bishops to actually sort of incarnate the, the revelation of scripture for our time and in this moment. Now, I think we would also argue as Anglicans without question, but that bishop must be in college of the bishops. Mm-hmm. Anything he's teaching needs to be in concordance with what they're teaching and under the submission of his archbishop. That's extremely important too. So I'm thinking through some of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, like if I got ministry residents, they're like, I don't agree with Bishop Stewart on women's ordination. I'm like, that's okay. That's part of the process. I don't expect every ministry resident. We don't ask about it on the application, like, what's your view on ordination? I don't want to ask about that. But do I ask when somebody is being ordained? I absolutely ask about it. Yeah. And then I read their answer carefully, and then we work through, okay, they may not agree, but like, what role will they be in? Is this going to work if they don't agree? Um, and while, honestly, we're still working out that even that question, like, where are we good on this, where are we not? Yeah. Um, to use this that particular example. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. But it's, it's trying to kind of like, where do you allow for that space? Which is actually my inclination. Um, I actually am inclined toward that because I like, I actually like different opinions. I like what happens when somebody has a different idea that's well thought through and cogent. And I go, ooh, that's interesting. Like that gets me thinking in a new way. Um, but I've also had to learn, yes, that's really important. But whether also times when you also have to say, like, you know, for the sake of scriptural fidelity and its application, we're gonna to have to line up here. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I love that the stakes are also a lot lower with ministry uh, resident versus you know, ordaining somebody. And I've been to, you know, I, I had attended a church 
that was really reformed and the nature of this kind of reformed theology was one where yeah. the inner circle and all the way out to the outer circle had to be lined up think all the same on a lot of minutia totally and it would make Adiophora it really issues hard. yeah made it really hard to like breathe totally whereas you know one of the things I love about our Anglican heritage is that you can have Lutherans Methodists you know yeah 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 I do too I do too and then I guess the question with the both and is when are you saying this isn't a both and yeah and when are you saying this is adiophora this is a, an importance that matters but it's a secondary matters what Paul calls it of secondary importance yeah like who and also who says that right <laughs> that, that's what gets really complicated yeah you know someone questioned going through the diocese recently from some, some different rectors is how do you feel about women preaching on at Sunday worship service. I think I touched on that with First Timothy too. Um, and we've had women preach at Res on Sunday morning service. And I'm not yet convinced that we shouldn't. And I've done a lot of reading on it as per some of my sharing with you guys theologically and biblically about that matter. But am I willing to say that that's adiophora? Am I willing to say that there may be rectors of very good conscience who are gonna embrace women in ministry who may say, I'm not comfortable having women preach on a Sunday. Are we gonna allow that be a both and? Um, the answer probably is yes, um, we are. Um, which is to say, would I require rectors to have them preach on a Sunday? I probably would not. Mm. Um, but, but I've had to work. I'm still working that through. Mm. That's one of those matters. <clears throat> it's like, okay, where do we land on this? Mm. Uh, I really respect that in a time when uh, it's it's hard for people to allow someone to disagree or like have a different opinion and not feel like they're just it's really. Yeah, right. And they're, they're personally, something's wrong with them personally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I had 10 years of having Karen Miller be my executive pastor who disagreed with me about women's ordination and ultimately got ordained. So I guess yeah. that, that stretched me in some really good ways. <laughs> awesome, you guys. Okay. Um, just a couple more of these. And then we'll... Turning the flywheel. Another one of disciplined actions. Um, so the flywheel concept is an engineering concept that my engineers, when I share with them, help me understand it. But, but basically it's very simple, right? The flywheel idea is that as you push the flywheel, it begins to gain momentum. But it must be pushed over and over again before it actually gains so much momentum that it then takes on its own momentum and runs on its own. So as a leader, you're often asking the question, okay, toward the hedgehog, our center thing, what we're called to do, I now need to not only just look at that hedgehog, isn't it cute? But I need to flywheel it. I need to start pushing it. And I need to start getting it going like this and like this and like this until eventually this thing just cranks. It just happens. So for years, Holy Week, which is one of our hedgehogs, one of the things what we do, it took a lot of cranking. And we still have to do a lot of work. But like even casting the vision for it, why it was so important, why you should be involved. Please get it volunteers. Push, 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 push. But now, now COVID Actually, we kind of had to redo it again. Adam, you experienced a year where we had to re restart the flywheel because of COVID. But it, that thing cranks. It just cranks. Um, we're almost there with church planting in the diocese. We're not there yet. Um, but with church planting, it's becoming a part of our culture. The expectation is we'll plant new churches. And everyone's like, are we planting another church? Why would we ever do that? Right? So we're getting that flywheel. I'm still doing this, but I'm not doing this. I'm doing this. Right? <laughs> and, and if I can achieve fruitfulness as a leader and at least maybe my successor will go well it just happens in this diocese people plant churches 
we pushed the flywheel for 20 years. Um, so when you turn the flywheel, you focus on the hedgehog. hedgehog. Um, and as you focus on the hedgehog, then what happens is you get results. You get church plants, for example. And then people go, oh, so resources, well, resources would be church planters and church plant teams go, we want to be a part of that. Donors go, we want to help give to that. Um, and so I've been delighted, by the way, that and, you know, even as Gregory House is still very much in her beginnings, you guys are pioneers in Gregory House, even though you're the fourth, you know, year we've had, um, you're still pioneering it. I've had two donors come to me in the last two months and say, we would like to give to a Gregory House. Um, we want to help underwrite something in the Gregory House. Why? Because we're starting to get, they, they're seeing some leaders, they're seeing the fruit, they're hearing about the sessions, and they want to give toward that. So that's a classic hedgehog thing. Now, Gregory House is still, <laughs> it will be for a while. Trying to build a ministry school takes a while, I think. Um, so results, fruit, breeds support and commitment, and that breeds greater results, which breeds greater support and commitment. Um, so it's just that incredible thing of, once you get that momentum, it's just incredibly powerful. Which is to say, the flywheel says, you really do need to get fruit. Again, in ministry, sometimes that people are like, I'm gonna go into ministry so I don't have to produce. I'm like, well, you should, you should go into ministry so you don't have to perform. But you actually do need to produce. And there's a difference. Um, so um, that's, that's the kind of the power of, of, of the flywheel. One of the things about the flywheel is it requires consistency. And we mentioned that earlier too, with discipline. And you have to have clarity about what not to do. One of the best ways to not keep pushing your flywheel um, is to do too many things. Um, so, and this is like in terms of like the hedgehog says, what is it that we do? What are we called to do? And how do we keep the flywheel going well? You have to be clear about what you do and about what you don't do. So I'm actually very, very interested in education. I'm very interested in, do we eventually start planting Anglican schools? And do we eventually plant an Anglican college? Um, you know, do we take all the good of a place like Moody and Wheaton, but neither of them are Anglican? And am I actually, is actually the Reformed Catholic work so important that it actually would be right to have an Anglican college? It's not a new idea. It's Oxford-Cambridge, right? In terms of their original concept, it was Anglican college. Um, but I haven't ever gone after it yet because I'm just trying to get a ministry school established, right? So I'm starting here with my hedgehog, trying to raise up next generation leaders and artists. I'm trying to get that done. But once that gets going, so I, and I can't look at that stuff right now, even though I really want to, and go, ooh, that's really interesting. <laughs> you know, like, I actually think we need that. Um, but I can't do that yet. I'm doing this. But then eventually, as this gets going, then I can go, oh, now I can start thinking about that. But you have to be disciplined about what you look at and what you don't look at. You should keep the Hermitians in your language. Oh, they are. <laughs> they are. They are. As are Max and yeah. as, as Madeline jumps into classical education for the first time, mm-hmm. Um, at Karis with Max, who's um, committed to it exactly. Oh, the Vermishas, the Prectors. <laughs> um, we, I mean, we need Anglican schools. And I, I have never felt that way. Because you guys know I'm not like into Anglicanism for Anglicanism's sake. I'm not into it. I'm like, I, you know, I love evangelicalism too. So I'm like, I love that. Send people to evangelical colleges. But now that I'm realizing just how important the reformed Catholic work is to contribute to evangelicalism and to serve evangelicalism. Um, and as I see Wheaton kind of departing more and more from their C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Dorothy Sayer um, roots that I wish they would just embrace more than ever. Like I wish Wheaton would just be, let's just be C.S. Lewis College. You know, like let's just like, let's just like, one of the great intellectuals, let's just be C.S. Lewis College. Let's, let's do it. Let's be, let's, let's be Tolkien and Sayer's College. Um, that's my little dream for Wheaton. Um, 
but nobody's really asking, you know, and it's not my job. So I got enough to do. Um, but I was like, embrace your heritage. Like the Wade Center, like don't let the Wade Center be this little thing on the side, like embrace it. I'm going, well, maybe that's because, you know, they're not Anglican. So it's understandable, but we are. Let's embrace it. Let's embrace Lewis. Let's embrace these great thinkers. Let's be J.I. Packer College. Um, so as we think about that, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering about that. Um, okay, so you get the first two plus the hedgehog plus the flywheel. You do that, and now you're talking about developing a movement more than an institution. An institution, they won't do it first two, then what? It's all about what? What job do we need? Who fits in the slot? That's how institutions think. Movement skill, no first two, then what? Hedgehog. We're actually going after this thing that, where there's this nexus of things that we're good at. Flywheel, and we're, we're pushing this flywheel. And in an institution, the whole idea is we don't want to push anything. It just happens itself. It's institutionalized. And there can be places where that's important and where actually you do just need things institutionalized that just happen. Not the church. Not the church. That's where, the, that, that's where you have more movement institution. It's more about a trust culture. That's first who, then what? Hedgehog, flywheel, um, both and. It's a trust culture more than a policy and procedure culture. Some policies, some procedures are necessary in every culture. But I'll tell you what, I always keep it on every policy or procedure that's developed at rest. Always. Still, I'm like, well, well, well be careful. And that's why you can't do one, but you better know why you're doing it and you better not have too many. Mm. Once you have that, you lose a trust culture, right? Mm. Um, and then you get an institution rather than a movement. Final thing um, on disciplined action is you learn to fire bullets, then cannonballs. This is awesome. This is a great phrase. So basically, when you fire a bullet, then a cannonball, is you go, you know what, before I try something new, I did not learn this as a, as a young pastor, um, fire a bullet, which is low risk, low cost, low distraction. So um, we knew we needed a small group ministry at Res. We were ashamed that we had all these years not, no small group ministry. Um, we did worship, that's who we were. That was our hedgehog, and we were right about that. But we're like, we really should have a small group ministry people can pastor. So Amy Patton, who's genius at this stuff, Amy's like, let's fire a bullet. So like, I was like, I want a small group ministry. I want it now. I want it to be excellent. Right now. Come on. Come on, Amy. You're super smart. Please, just give it to me. And I got five other things I need to do right now. I'm a rector. Um, Amy's like, oh, time out. Um, let, me, let me build it for six months and read and talk to people. Then let me come to you, to the team. Let me bring a proposal. And she brought the proposal. And she's like, and now let me have a whole year to pilot it. I'm like, <laughs> I was so frustrated. I <laughs> Yeah, oh, and, and everyone was like clamoring for it. I'm like, people are going to leave res, you know? I'm like, you do your little pilot over there, people are leaving res, you know? Um, She's so like, well, do you want it to be good? Or do you want it, to, you know, or do you want it to be great? And I'm like, all right, She was so right, right? So she fired a bullet. We had five small groups. She worked with the leaders. She was so good. We fired a bullet. And if it hadn't worked or gone well, people were like, well, we didn't even know what was going on. Didn't cost us anything. It was low cost, low risk, low distraction. Um, so you need to learn to fire lots of bullets and then you fire your cannonball. That's a great life lesson as well, by the way. So it's kind of like, you know, um, you know, what, how can we like approach this by maybe it's even kind of a fleece, Gideon fleeces oriented thing. How do we, how can we approach this to see, is this working? Does this make sense? You know, before we go completely all in. Now, sometimes in the lore, he just says, fire your cannonball. Got to do it, you know? So this is more just a practically speaking kind of, kind of thing. Um, yeah. So fire, fire bullets, think cannonballs. That's super helpful as you're building stuff. All right, guys. Any other thoughts or reflections? It's I know it's a ton of content. So I just gave you uh, all my reading over the last many years in five books <laughs> in eight bullet points. But 
I think it'll serve you. And obviously, it's all there in Collins. If at any point you're like, that, that, what, what, what did that mean? I can easily point you to the Collins place where he's got it in these books. It was interesting to think of like all the um, five M's mm. kind of coming through. Yep. Of totally. You know, having the right, like knowing your ministry gift. Mm. And a lot of people don't know their ministry gift until they're like in the wrong role or in the right role. And totally. Knowing like, you know, that's knowing your ministry gift, helping. Helps leaders to understand like where you would fit on in the seat on the bus, and um, that's exactly right. How many times I the five M's just kind of kept coming up yeah. to me in this study. Yeah, it's such a gift that the apostle gave us. Yeah, to help us think about these different ministries in the church. Yeah, and how we're connected to them. But even how they're like mutually correcting. Yes, you know, like the Absolutely. like your apostolic. Yeah, and then um, you know Amy certainly has like an apostolic as well but you know what what, what what do you think that was the one of the ends that kind of came through from her and saying like well let's do you want it good you know, right like, exactly exactly perhaps yeah well, yeah she, probably she say you're not a shepherd but she no 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 wanting to and maybe even just like the feminine genius there too of like that I think I think if you're gonna go off the off the five M map and go into that map, I think that's what it was, because Amy's actually she would say, she'd be the first to say I'm not that great at shepherding. <laughs> I think she could be a very pastoral presence. I think you've had some meetings with her. I mean, she can be very pastoral. She's a mom at heart, but she is she would say I'm not a great shepherd, um, but I I love shepherds and I can employ them. I think it's feminine genius. I think she's like, you systematize this, you mechanize this, you're not gonna end up liking it. It's not gonna work. That's a good insight. Um, but you're right that the five M's worked that way. I mean, that was Karen and me. I mean, Karen was, um, she was all in Shepherd all the time. And um, and so when I would be thinking apostolically, and I have a strong shepherding gift, so actually when she would say shepherding, I'd be like, you're right. But she often corrected me on this stuff yeah. and helped me think more specifically that way. Um, I think that's right. Yeah. She's the one who crafted our like, conflict yeah. Stuff, right? yeah. yeah, Kevin. Kevin Kevin actually was the one that drafted that, but Karen was super involved in it. Yeah, I didn't do that teaching this time in Gregory House. I, I have a teaching on how to handle conflict biblically. Um, we'll do it next year. Um, but yeah, that came, that came out of a lot of stuff Karen and Kevin and I worked through. They were very good at working through conflict. So, you know, the thoughts and reflections you got on all this stuff? <laughs>